when Molly found out that I was preaching this morning, she, uh, she goes, do you have any good stories today? I'll see what I can do. As we continue our sermon series in uh, Romans, it's called Resurrection Changes Everything. As we continue, we're in uh, Romans chapter 12, and as you breathe a collective sigh of relief that we're not in uh, 9 through 11 anymore, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another with showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Please be seated. What is it you long to know in life? What is it you long to know that will give your life purpose and meaning and value? What is it that you live for? It might not be a question you think of very often, but I guarantee that you all have one. And I guarantee that somewhere underneath all your motivations is something that animates all your actions every single day. So what do you live for? That's the question on Paul's mind as he moves us into Romans 12. That's the question he puts before you today. Now over the last few weeks we've been in chapters 9 through 11, the deep end, 
You'd be hard-pressed to find three more difficult chapters in the entire Bible dealing with more difficult topics. And this whole time, Paul is slowly taking us up and giving us a 30,000-foot view of how God has acted in human history. And he gives us this beautiful picture of how God has rescued his people. But then we get to chapter 12, and it seems like he shifts gears. seems like he moves in a new direction, and he begins to come down to ground level and just talk about simple, mundane Christian things, right? It's like we've been riding on this tour bus with Paul going 90 miles an hour, and all of a sudden he pops the e-brake, fishtails into a hard right turn, and goes in a completely new direction. Starts talking about loving one another. Be gracious towards one another. Be generous. Be courteous. Show honor. Greet five people before you leave and have a good week. He's just talking about simple, good old-fashioned Christian living. Or is it? Truth is that Paul actually doesn't take a hard right turn. He keeps going in the same direction that he's been taking us the entire time. And what tells us this is that Paul uses a very important word in verse 1. He uses the word therefore. And this is the biggest therefore in the entire Bible. And you hear it in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now this, therefore, is Paul telling you that everything he has said up to this point has led to this. And honestly, there's probably a better translation for the phrase spiritual worship at the end of that verse. It's probably better translated as reasonable worship. So Paul is saying, therefore, that in light of everything he has said up to this point, in light of God's mercy, the most reasonable thing you can do is sacrifice your very life and give him everything that you are. A friend of mine went to a seminary and he told me about a professor that he had. He'd always say the same thing. He'd always say, boys, 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 boys. Jesus doesn't ask for much. He just asks for everything. So maybe you hear Jesus asking you that today. and It makes you a little uncomfortable. So why would Paul call it so reasonable? Why is it so clear in Paul's mind that he would say this is the most reasonable thing you can do. Well, let's think about our question again. What is it you long to know in life? What is it you long to know that will give your life meaning and value? What is it you long to experience? What is it that you live for? Now, I think hovering deep beneath the surface of our lives is the pursuit of the unknown. Is the pursuit of the unknown. There's always something that we are pursuing that we want to know. And I think it's evidenced by our certain fascination with particular stories where something completely unknown becomes known and radically changes life forever. That after it becomes known, life is never the same again. So maybe for you, it's the matrix. You're handed a red and blue pill. And yeah, you can have your eyes opened, the veil removed, and you can see the world as it is. Maybe for you it's the story of the Lord of the Rings, where you're handed just a simple, insignificant, tiny little ring. Or maybe it's the day that uh, an owl shows up with a letter in its beak to Mr. H. Potter, cupboard under the stairs, four privet drive, little winging Surrey, England. 
or maybe the discovery of a wardrobe buried deep in a mansion that leads to a world called Narnia. You can take your pick. We're fascinated with all of them. Because we're fascinated by stories with simple moments in life that actually reveal life to be far more meaningful with far more purpose than we could have ever imagined. And in a moment, something completely unknown becomes known and changes everything. Now me, I've always been fascinated with the unknown of outer space. I love it. I love learning about it. I always have, even when I was a kid. I love going back home to Melissa's parents' house way out in the country. And on a summer night, you can see stars that go on forever. That's where I try all my cool moves. And I'm like, sweetie, that's Orion's belt. She's like, it's chilly. Let's go in. <laughs> but I love space. I always have. And I was recently listening to an uh, astrophysicist named Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's a popular understudy of Carl Sagan. And I was listening to him on NPR in this uh, interview where he was talking about the fact that there's never been a single human venture. There's no single endeavor to understand the unknown, to understand where we come from, and to understand what we are, like the, discover or like the pursuit of the universe. There's no greater unknown out there than to pursue all of our answers and to find where we come from why we're here, and where we're going. For him, it's the ultimate unknown that he wants to know. And as I was listening to him, we started talking about the first manned mission to Mars. It's currently being planned. You might remember Ryan talking about it a few weeks ago. So it interested me, and I jumped online to research the project, and I came across a short documentary that highlights the Mars One project, which is a massive project to put the first people the first of mankind on Mars. And in this documentary, they interviewed five of the 200,000 applicants that have applied to be considered to be the first people on Mars. And what makes this documentary so unique, and what makes this trip so unique, isn't just the fact that this is the biggest, most incredible venture or feat that mankind will ever accomplish or all the training that they'll have to do, or the fact that it'll take a year to get there. It's the fact that all of these people are signing up for a one-way trip. They're booking a one-way trip. We only have the technology to get them there. We don't have the technology to bring them home. And so they're applying knowing full well that they will leave life as they know it on this planet behind and never, ever return. Now these aren't, this isn't SEAL Team 6, special people. These are people just like you. People with families. Some of them have girlfriends and boyfriends. Some of them are engaged to be married. One man in particular has a wife, two young girls, and a toddler son. And he's willing to leave all of that behind and sacrifice all of that, all of what life could be. All of those moments of watching his children graduate, watching them get married, watching them have kids of their own. They're willing to give up all of it. And they all talk about one thing in common. They all talk about this purpose for living that they desperately want to know. They actually want to feel like their lives mean something. 
And life on Mars, the great unknown of life on Mars is their opportunity to find it. And as one of the applicants puts it, he said, going to Mars would give me another reason for living. And it would renew my purpose for mankind. That might seem like an extreme situation. But today Paul is telling you that you are in the same position they are. Whatever it is that you have decided to pursue, whatever your purpose and meaning in life is, in the end, it will cost you your life. So let me ask you again. What does he want to know in life? What does he want to know and experience that will give your life meaning and purpose? Is it a million dollars? Is it your purpose fulfilled when you see your retirement account growing? Do you want to be the youngest CEO, the youngest member on your board? Is it social status and being invited to all the best parties in town? Being a parent with kids that meet your standards of success? Maybe for you and your house, it's winning at all costs. Maybe it's the house you don't have in that other neighborhood. Maybe it's losing 20 pounds. Maybe it's comfort and ease and never having a moment of suffering in your life. The world will offer you countless ways to find purpose, so what is it for you? Have you thought about it? Because the truth is that we're all searching for purpose. We're all searching for one because the things you pursue in life are ultimately an expression of what you feel will give your life meaning and purpose and value And regardless of what you feel that purpose is, you'll always find the reasons to support it, and you'll always validate whatever it takes, whatever it takes and whatever you have to sacrifice to obtain it. Because in the end, buried deep beneath all of your motivations is the desire to matter. You desperately want to matter. And maybe that's why you feel disappointed. Maybe that's why you feel angry. Maybe that's why you're frustrated in life. Maybe that's why you've just kind of given up and live in default mode. That marriage or job that you had didn't quite turn out the way you wanted it to. Didn't quite live up to the hopes you had for it. Maybe the maintenance of a larger house just leaves you stressed all the time as you try to clean it. Or maybe no matter how much your kids achieve, it's always on to the next thing. It's always one done and on to the next one, and you're exhausted. No matter what your reasons are for pursuing the things you do, in the end, they just don't add up to the hopes that you invested in them, and they never, ever, ever will. Paul would say that's because the world makes promises that it can't keep. The problem is these purposes can't bear the weight of the hunger and meaning and value that you long for. And it also can't bear the weight of the hunger and val- for value and meaning that you were created for. Because you were created for something far greater. So think about it this way. How would you like to get to the end of your life and realize that you wasted it by chasing after all the wrong things? How would you like to get to the end of your life and realize that you sacrificed all the wrong things? To realize that you put all the wrong things on the altar. How would you like to get to the end of your life and realize that meaning and value 
and purpose was staring you right in the face the entire time, and you missed it. Because the truth is, who lies on their deathbed clinging desperately to a bonus check or a trophy? The answer is no one. Paul says that you have to seriously wrestle with the fact that in the end, all other pursuits are fleeting. There's an inherent fragility to all of it. Because the resurrection says that whatever purpose you come up with yourself, it better be able to deal with death because it's coming for you. And you're a day closer to it than you were yesterday. And death will swallow up any purpose you could possibly dream up for yourself except one. God's purpose to rescue you from a life of utter meaninglessness and claim you for himself and bring heaven to earth. And in chapter 12, Paul wants you to take a step back. Take a deep breath. I want you to reconsider all the things you know in life. I want you to reevaluate all your reasons. I want you to take a, a spiritual selfie and stare at it for a while. Take a good look at yourself. He wants you to consider everything that he's laying before you. And he wants you to swim deeply for a second in God's mercy towards you. I want you to recognize that God has not left the world or you to live in complete meaninglessness just to be swallowed up in death, but to recognize that God has given up what is most precious to him and climbed down off of his throne and put on flesh and climbed onto a cross to show you his grand, unbelievable love for you. And in light of that, what could be more reasonable than to give him your very life? So today Paul lays before you not a pill, not a magic wardrobe or a ring. Paul lays before you a cross. And he says, come and find life and purpose by sacrificing everything that you are. And he says, if that's something that you want to experience, if you want a taste of that, he goes on in verse 2, and he says that if you want to know that purpose, you have to be transformed in the renewal of your mind. The whole way you think about the world has to change. You have to know God himself. But that may give you the question, what does my thinking have to become? How is my thinking supposed to change about the world? Well, to understand the rest of chapter 12, we need to remember the backstory of the person who's actually writing us this letter. It's Paul, formerly known as Saul. And Saul was a leader among the Jews. He was a self-described Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the protege, the golden boy of Gamaliel, who was the leading teacher in all of Israel. Saul was his boy. He was the next in line. Saul was the one who led the persecution against the church. He was the one who held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen so that they wouldn't be hindered and they could throw harder. And the Bible says he watched with great approval. That's the one who's writing you this letter. And while he was on the Damascus road to rid the world of more Christians and serve God, a blinding light appears in front of him and a voice says out of it, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And the voice replies, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
that God Saul thought he knew, he didn't. And in that moment, the unknown became known for Paul, and it changed all of his reasons for living. Saul woke up a devout Pharisee that day, and he went to bed a follower of Jesus. But there's something very important in this story that Jesus says that shapes all of Paul's understanding, and it's easy to miss. Jesus doesn't ask, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Stephen? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you killing me? Why are you hurting me? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Perhaps Paul puzzled, Saul puzzled over that question for a long time. He goes away for three years and we don't know what happened to him. Maybe he stayed up late at night and instead of looking at stars, he wondered about that question for the longest time. Thinking, what an odd question to ask. Until the moment he realized that the people of God are so united to Jesus and share in his life so much that what you, whatever you do or don't do to Jesus, Jesus' people, is no different than doing it to Jesus himself. And this is what gave Paul a whole new outlook, a whole new way of thinking about life and knowing God and God's people. And this is what helps us make sense in verse 4 when Paul starts talking that we are the body of Christ and we are members of one another, that we belong to each other in the most profound and incredible way. Which means that I share life with you and you share life with me because together we share life with Jesus. And it means that your ups and downs become my ups and downs, your pain becomes my pain, and my pain become your, becomes yours. That when we look at each other, we don't just see each other, we see Jesus too. So Paul is saying that if you want to be transformed in the renewal of your mind and know God, then look no further than the person sitting right next to you. And if you want to know God and His mercy, you don't just look up, you look out. And that's where you'll find Jesus. And you will find no greater purpose, not in serving yourselves, but in serving the needs of others. You can't love Jesus apart from loving His people. Because they're one and the same. They're so united, so one, that the Bible makes no difference. So what would our church look like if we grasped this more and more? What would your life look like if this changed the way you thought about the world, thought about what happens in your life? That when we serve each other, we're serving Jesus too. So when you sacrifice a little bit of your own comfort to give someone else comfort that desperately needs it, you're comforting Jesus too. That when you give up a little bit of luxury and a little bit of money in your own life to give someone else luxury that didn't have the same chances and the same opportunities that you had, you're doing it to Jesus too. That Jesus is there in all those small moments. And what would our church look like if we were stumbling over one another to show love and value and honor and grace and tenderness and compassion to each other? And this gives a whole new meaning to all those simple moments in life, every new relationship, every conversation, every hello, 
every moment with your spouse, every moment with your kids, every harsh word with your kids, every loving word to your spouse, every new relationship, every new opportunity to serve the needs of others and those who are hurting. Jesus is right there. Every moment is an opportunity to think, how can I love and serve you? And that way of thinking creates a culture that the world has never, ever known. And you, as the body of Christ, make the unknown known to the world. There's an old story where a man had a dream. And in his dream, Jesus comes to him, and the man asks him, Jesus a question. He says, show me heaven and hell. And so Jesus took him to this long hallway with a door at each end. And so the man walked into the first one, and when he got inside the room, he was hit with the most amazing, wonderful aroma of stew. Probably something like Kenny Phillips would cook up. And he just smelled it, and it made him so hungry. And as he looks around this room, he sees this huge circular table. And at the center of this table is this massive pot filled with stew, just brimming to the top. And it looks so savory and so good. And as he looks around this table, he sees all the way around it all of these miserable, emaciated, starving people. And each of them have a spoon that's long enough to reach all the way into the center of the table to get some stew. But the problem is they can't get it back to their mouth without tipping it over and spilling it. And it looks like torture. And so the man is very disturbed and he walks out. And Jesus says, what did you see? And so the man told him and Jesus said, that was hell. So the man goes into the other room and he's hit with something different. As soon as he gets in, he's hit with the sound of this hysterical, joyful laughter. And as he looks around, he sees a room with the same setup with a huge circular table and an empty pot in the middle of the table. And there's no stew left. And he looks around the room and he sees all of these people, warm and well-fed, laughing hysterically and enjoying one another. And so the man walks out confused, and he looks at Jesus, and Jesus says, what did you see? And so the man told Jesus what he saw, and Jesus said, that was heaven. And the man said, I don't understand, but I want to know. And Jesus said, it's quite simple. They learn to feed each other. What will it take for some of you to stop trying to get the spoon in your own mouth? When will you stop trying to feed yourself and start feeding the person right next to you? Don't you know your needs are met when you meet the needs of others? And this is why Paul isn't just talking about good Christian living. He's talking about the only way to truly live. That you flourish when you seek the flourishing of others. And to find the purpose and satisfaction you're looking for. You don't have to travel to another planet or a nicer neighborhood. You don't have to move up a tax bracket. 
You can find all the meaning you want in the simple moments of everyday life where you serve others and put their needs before yours. Because these are the moments where you come face to face with Jesus himself and he changes you. To bring all this together, I want to tell you and close with a little bit of my own story. The Mars One documentary strikes really close to home for me. I went to college to get an engineering degree because it was actually my dream to become an astronaut. It was all I ever thought about doing. It's all I ever wanted to do. So that's why I want to tell you that I applied and have been accepted to go to Mars. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just making sure you're with me. Okay? You fall asleep on me, I'm going to Mars. No, but it really was my dream. It's what I wanted to do. I could still quote the movie Apollo 13, line for line. It was my dream to travel in space. It was all I ever thought about. I wanted to live that dream and have lots of money, lots of success. I wanted to explore the universe and have all the glory from me. And one night in college... The unknown became known in the most radical way. It was two in the morning, and like any sane college student, it was time to go to Taco Bell. (laughs) And there was a long line, because it was right next to campus, and so we had plenty of time to talk. We started talking about Jesus, and he started telling me the gospel. This new friend I had made, as I slowly got back into church again after a long hiatus, and he started telling me, about this man named Jesus that I thought I knew, but I never did. He started telling me a gospel that I had never heard before. And I kept thinking to myself, that can't be true, that can't be true. And he had verse after verse that made all my reasoning fall apart. And I can honestly say I went to bed that night feeling as though the God I thought I knew, I didn't. And it turned my world upside down, and it changed all of my reasons. And I remember a year later, I called my dad, and I said, Dad, I've been pursuing all the wrong things. I want to go in a new direction. Sometimes I look back at that life that I could have lived. think about it quite a bit. There's usually not a time where I don't look up at night and think, yeah, it would have been neat to do all of that and see all of that. I'm thinking about the things I could have pursued, and I can honestly say that Jesus gave me something far better. When I think about all the money I could have had, all the things I could have seen, the life I could have lived, I can say wholeheartedly that Jesus gave me something far better. And nothing of what I could have lived and that life would have given me compares to what Jesus actually gave me because he gave me himself. And he gave me you. Each one of you. He gave me this church family. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Because it's within this church that we experience more of Jesus in the life that we live together. It's where your ups and downs become our ups and downs. Your pain becomes our pain. Your joy becomes our joy. When you hear Jesus asking you to make yourself a living sacrifice, I tell you my story just to tell you and encourage you that no matter what Jesus asks you to give, what he gives you in return is far greater. 
And I am excited about what God's doing in our church. If you put an ear to the ground, you can hear it and you can see it. There's something happening that's incredible. And honestly, last year we were a little nervous about raising $30,000 for India. And instead, God brought in 62000 I love seeing the outpouring of support when someone is in need and hurting and in crisis. I love people telling us to stop bringing them meals because their refrigerator is so full. And I can't wait to see what Jesus is going to do next at Trinity Harbor Church. And what does he want to do in your life? What things does he want to give you that far outweigh anything else that you could possibly pursue? And what else might God want to do through us? And you can know that the joy that you'll receive will be actually a small foretaste of heaven. So how much of it do you want to taste? So back to our question. What is it that will give your life purpose and meaning and value? Perhaps a better question would be to ask you this. With that long spoon in your hand, whose mouth are you going to feed first? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us more than we could possibly imagine. You have given us your very self. Father, we thank you that you have rescued us from a life of meaninglessness. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, that you have given us good things, that we might learn to give good things to others, that we might take the good things that you have given us to display your love and care and tenderness to a world that doesn't know you, doesn't value you, and doesn't love you. Father, maybe some of us in this room right now are really tired. We don't know why. We're exhausted. We can't quite put our finger on it. I pray that your spirit would speak deeply into their heart and that you would woo them unto yourself and that they would see a glimpse of your tremendous mercy that shows all of our other pursuits is completely unreasonable and makes giving us, giving you all of ourselves the most reasonable thing we can do. I ask that you would work among our body, among our church, that you would unify us in such a way that together we would offer one living sacrifice to extend your kingdom and bring heaven to this earth. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.